we are in this series, uh, Misunderstanding the Bible. And we've been going through really kind of a, a bird's eye view of the scriptures. So this series is different than maybe a typical sermon series where you're saying, hey, let's go through a book of the Bible or look at a passage or, or various passages. And instead, what we're saying is, no, no, what is, let, let's pull out of this and say, what is this book? And how should we approach it? And how should we read it? And how should we treat this book? And so we've been going through this series um, about the Bible and how, um, and how, um, how we can better think about it and approach it. And so we'll, I'm gonna catch us up um, over the last few weeks and then we'll kind of, and then we'll jump in this morning. We got a lot to cover. If you're a note taker, man, you're gonna be super happy today. There's a lot to take notes on. So uh, week one in this series, we talked about the canon and not like cannonball canon, but canon literally means the measuring rod. And it's, it's how we measure, like how we measure life. And so the, what became known as the canon is is the entire Bible, like all 66 books. This is a library. This isn't a book. And the bookends, like the thing that decides, like this is it, this is the, the Bible, is what we call the canon. It's all of the scriptures in one reference or library or book that we call the Bible. And we talked about how we got the canon, how the books made it in, which ones made it, which ones didn't, and the criteria. And, um, and, so, and it was, I think, hopefully eye-opening to realize oh, wow, there really was a process by which kind of the Bible was, uh, the, the canon of Scripture was discovered and compiled. And then week two, we talked about the two I words. We talked about um, inspiration, that, the, the, that God's word is inspired, inspired by God, and inerrancy that is without error and what it communicates. And like, like it's trustworthy. When we read this, we can know this is not only true, but this is what God wants me to know, and, and I can trust it. And then we talked about week three, illumination and authority. We talked about specifically the Holy Spirit's role, how it, how it illuminates the scriptures for us so we can understand it because this is a spiritual book as much as it is like a history or a narrative or, or like just a, a, another religious book. It really is like there's a spiritual component to it. The Bible says it's, it's active and alive. And so the, the Holy Spirit works to help us understand it. And then we talked about authority. And this was, this, this one I think was challenging for a number of us, maybe most of us, because we talked about how all, the entire Bible is authoritative, but not all of it is authoritative for us. And we said, are we supposed to obey all of the Bible? To which the answer was, no, of course not. And not because we don't believe it. We believe all of the Bible. But, but we were, if you remember this, we talked about being new covenant people, not old covenant people. And so the old covenant laws and, and standards by which like, the, the Israelites lived don't apply to us. And, and, and so we read it, but we don't obey it. And this is, listen, this is, we said, this is great news. This is great news because it means we can have bacon and ham, right? And, and seafood and shellfish and, and, and like wonderful. So it, we, oh, we read the Bible, we, we believe it, but not all of it applies. We are New Testament, New Covenant rather, people living now under this new covenant that Jesus started. And so though all of it's authoritative, not all of it is authoritative for us. And then... Last week, we talked uh, about um, context and background. You remember the three rules to Scripture, to interpreting Scripture? You remember? Here we go. Ready? 
Oh, that's so wonderful. That's beautiful. That sounds so good. Context, context, context. That when we read scripture and interpret scripture, try to understand the scriptures and what a verse or a passage means, you got to look at the context. What comes before it, what comes after it, the historical context of what's going on during that time. You can't just pull out a verse and say, I know what this means. This applies to me. You have to look at the context and the background. So this morning, we're going to look at, at um, two new words. And, and I said this last service, so I'll tell you too, that, that this morning is going to, it's probably going to feel a little bit, not quite like a college course, like where you have homework and stuff, but rather a little bit in that we're just doing a deep dive into the scriptures and how we should read it. And so there's a lot to go over and a lot to cover. Um, and then I said, actually, we are going to quiz you. At the end of the series, I think all these words we're putting up, we're just going to quiz you and see if you can remember them. We have two more words this morning, and, and as we like understand the, like, kind of the, the, the meaning or the, or the themes behind these words, it helps us in our understanding of the Scriptures. And, and this morning, we're going to look at two other things. But before we do, I, I want to address an issue that, that, that um, we'll be talking about this morning. The question is this. Should we believe the Bible literally? And, and we're going to answer that this morning and, and have some fun with it and kind of work our way through what that means. But I want to start by saying this. The word literally is so often misused by all of you. And when, so often when we use the word literally, we literally do it wrong. That the word literally means like actually, like the, this is the real use of it. There's no, pl- there's no meaning behind it. But we, we use it completely wrong. We'll say things like this. Like, um, I'm so hungry, I could literally eat an entire cow. And you go, I bet you can't. I don't care how hungry you are. I bet, I, in fact, I, will, I would love to see that happen. There's no way. Well, okay, I don't mean literally. Then don't say literally or or like you'll be sharing a story or something that's was really funny or that you found funny or a joke or someone or whatever or, or, or an experience or whatever it was and and you'll say something like this oh my gosh it was so funny we literally died laughing and you're going no you didn't because you're here telling the story clearly you didn't literally die but we say it like that so when we talk about the bible when we say we believe the Bible literally, do we mean that? And, 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 and we use that word literally with the Bible and, and, and how we talk about it, but, but is that actually how we should believe it? And I, 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 I want to I back up too and, and recognize that we do this from a place of good intentions. We say things like this, I believe the Bible literally. And, and let's, I'm going to be honest, okay? It feels like, you know, again, I, I like to step on toes, sometimes unintentionally, most of the time it's intentional, but here we go. And I might be stepping on your toes. You'll say things like, I believe the Bible literally, or I take the Bible literally. And it sounds really good, but it can often come across not so much as a, here's how I read and understand the Bible, but rather I have to defend it. It's my job to make sure you know 
what I believe about the Bible. And, and I have to defend it and its character and what it is by saying, I take, well, I take the Bible literally, almost like a source of pride, but also sort of I, listen, my understanding of the Bible is the right understanding and you should have it too. As though it's your job to defend God. Let me, can I do something for you real quick? The answer is yes, I can. I'm gonna relieve the, this pressure that you feel that it's your job to defend God or defend his word. Listen, listen. God is not on his throne going, man, what would I ever do if they stopped defending me? What, what would I do if they weren't around? No one would be here to defend me or my Bible. Listen, your prime, okay, again, I'm probably stepping on toes. Your primary concern with the Bible is not to defend it to everyone who doesn't like it. Listen, your job with the Bible is to understand it, to love it, to read it, to appreciate it. So we could say this. The two words we're gonna look at this morning are meaning. How do we, inter how do we discover meaning from this? What does this mean? And the second word, and we'll spend some time having fun with this one, genres. The genres of scripture. I'm gonna guess, I don't know how many sermons you've sat through if you've been, you know, coming to church for a long time or not very long at all. But regardless, I bet you've never had a sermon series or a sermon on, hey, let's talk about genres. You're like, ooh, yeah, 12, 12 weeks on that, let's do it. You probably, this morning might be the first time you ever hear that the word, literally the word genres as we discuss the Bible and just how important it is. So, as we go through this, as we begin, let's say this. The real issue is not whether we take the Bible literally. It's not like something that we feel like I have to make sure everyone knows. The real issue is not whether you take it literally or not, but whether we take the Bible, ready for this, seriously. Your job is not to defend it and say, oh, I take the Bible literally, and if you disagree, you're wrong. How dare you? Okay, hold on. Instead, what we say is, no, 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 I take this very seriously. And, and, and the goal isn't, I'm telling you why it's the best book or why you should read it or why you should like understand it how I do. But instead, I talk about it as someone who loves it. Think of it like this. Um, some of you, and, and I'm sure a lot of you, have maybe a, a favorite book series or uh, you know, a fantasy world or, or like movie series or, a, or a, a TV series or whatever. And, and when someone brings, here's how you know someone loves it. When someone brings it up, they light up, right? And, and their job isn't to tell you why you should believe, like why you should think that, you know, Star Wars is the greatest series ever. And like they're, they're beating you over the head to make you understand. By the way, the originals, not the later ones. They're like, it went downhill quick. And, but like the original Star Wars, like most people, like if you're guys, especially if you grew up at the time, you're going, this is amazing. And, and, and here's the deal. Your job isn't to go around telling everyone, hey, you should also love Star. If you don't, you are a terrible person. Although that may be true. <laughs> like it's that good. When, when you mention Star Wars or like Lord of the Rings or fantasy stuff with someone who loves that, it isn't, well, here's why it's the best. It's, oh my gosh. I, 
okay, have you read this? Have you watched this? And they start saying words and names. You're like, okay, I shouldn't have brought it up because they are now going off on a tangent. We have a few of those on staff. And like when it happens, I just got to leave the room. Just be like, hey, I'm sorry I brought it up. Listen, what they're doing is not defending like the thing they love. What they're doing is they're expressing how much they love it. When we talk about the Bible, it isn't your job to make sure everyone has the proper view of the Bible. It's your job to understand and love it. And listen, that's what becomes contagious. When they go, man, this person, like, they're under, like they read the Bible like it, like it matters, like it means something, like it's meant something to them. Maybe I, all right, all right, well, why do you read it like that? What's the, what's the big deal about the Bible? And it's not, you better believe this or else, but rather, I take this seriously. So let's talk about this first word, meaning. When we talk about how do we discover or understand the meaning of the scriptures or a, or a text or a passage, um, how do we go about doing that? When we talk about meaning, we're talking about really two things. And both of these things are important, but so often we do it wrong because we do, it at the, we do them at the same time. Both of these things are essential for us to understand the meaning of the text, but we're not very good at, at, at making sure we do them. So uh, there's a chart here. You can write this down if you're taking notes and kind of draw it however you want. But it looks like this. On one side, we have the what. This is just the literally, here's what happened. Here's what it says. Here's what it's saying happened. This person said this or did that, or there's what they're saying about this passage or this description or this thing or this. It's how, here's how it's describing God. This is the, the easiest part. Here's what it says. And then on the other side is we could call the so what. All right. So what? So what? Who cares? This thing happened. What difference does it make? What difference should it make? On the one side, the what is simply understanding the text. I understand what it's saying. Whether I like it or not, or agree with it or not, doesn't matter. I understand what it's saying. And then on the other side is now applying the text to say, all right, now, now that I have an understanding of what it is, I have a better understanding now of what it means for me and what I should do, how I should respond to what it says. What we're talking about is, is, is interpretation and then application. Now, here's what we do. So often, you'll be in a Bible study or maybe with just one-on-one with someone or having a conversation and a passage or a verse will come up and you'll be reading it and we'll immediately jump to, well, here's what it means for me. Here's what I understand this to be saying. Here's what, here's what this seems to mean. And we'll just say what we think. And what we've done is we've jumped from like, any kind of understanding in the original, like with the original author and the original setting of here's what he's writing, here's how we're understanding it, here's the setting, here's the context. We skip all that. We're like, no, no, this was a waste. That's so much work. No, no, no. Let me just tell you what I think it means. And then we jump to here's what it means for you. You read a passage and or a verse and you say, here's what you should do. And you've, you've skipped over all of the, the serious work to say, no, I really want to understand because there is a gap here. What makes this hard is there is a 2,000 year culture gap between when it was written and when you're reading it. So when it was written, it meant something and words meant something. 
And now 2,000 years later, those words might mean different things or those descriptions or, or those illustrations don't make sense because we're not living in that culture. So we read it one way, but they wrote it and meant it and understood it a totally different way. And so what we've done is we've misinterpreted what it says because we think our time, like it's really easy. I know what this English word means. So therefore I know what this passage means. Well, hold on. There is a culture gap between us. Uh, when I was in seminary, we, um, I took a um, number of preaching classes. One of them was, was by a guy, Kent Edwards, who's written books on preaching. He's a, he's a great dude. And I remember I learned a lot and got to be his TA and stuff. It was great. Um, and he talked about there being this culture gap. And he said, when you're doing uh, studying scripture and getting ready to preach even, there is a wall between these two. And he says, you aren't allowed to go to the application until you've done all of the interpretation. You've got to figure out what it means before you just jump over to talk about, now here's what you're supposed to do. So you spend all this time talking about, I want to understand in its context everything about this so I can then make a good, like a proper application now. We, again, we don't do that. We just jump right to it because we, you know, we, don't, we don't have time for that. It takes, a, it takes work. So let's talk about this and, and how we now discover the meaning of a text. Here's what we've talked about so far throughout this series. We've talked about the difference between, if you remember this, descriptive versus prescriptive text. Descriptive is here's what happened. It's describing. This is narrative. This is here's the course of events. Prescriptive is now here's what we're supposed to do a command or something that Jesus says. So, all right, that I'm supposed to obey. Descriptive is just, here's what happened, and it doesn't mean we're supposed to replicate it. And we looked at, if you remember this, we looked at Abraham's life, who, who lied about his, his wife being his sister, right? Like, guys, listen, just quick word of advice. Don't do that. Don't do that. Someone says, oh, is this your wife? And you're like, no, it's my sister. What? Well, you, you guys are awfully close. No, well, you know, we just very affectionate. What? And then if you remember this too, in a descriptive of like of Abraham's life, if you remember this, uh, they couldn't have kids, his wife Sarah. And so she comes and says, hey, clearly I'm, you know, we're old age and, and it's just not in the cards. We're not going to have kids, but I have a handmaiden. And so, you know, you just think about starting a family with her. And, and Abraham, the loving husband said, no, honey, I can never do that. I would never do that. No, he didn't say that. He says, that sounds like a good idea, honey. <laughs> and, and like, we read that and say, listen, that's describing what happened, but listen, listen to me, ready? You should not do the same thing. That's not saying, I, well, then the Bible says it. No, 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 no. So we looked at descriptive versus prescriptive. Then we talked about context, and you already got this right. Context, context, context. We talked about exegesis versus eisegesis. Exegesis pulling the meaning out of the text. Let the text speak for itself. Eisegesis is how you don't, like the, the wrong way to do this, where you say, I'm going to insert my understanding or interpretation, my preferences into the text. I'm going to read something and I'm going to say, well, this is what I want it to say. This is what it means for me. That is a terrible way to read scriptures. All right, that gets us now to the second word. And we're going to spend some time here and have some fun. The second word is genre. And we're going to talk about just how important 
the genres that we find in Scripture are and how they help kind of unlock and help us understand how we should interpret this passage or this book or this verse or this word in the Scriptures. It's often so neglected when we talk about genre, but yet it frames our understanding of the text. Think of it like this. It is the rules to a sport. So pick a sport, any sport, soccer. There are certain rules that you have to follow if you're going to play them. And if you break the rules, the game stops. And maybe you're penalized, maybe you're kicked off, right? If you're playing soccer and all of a sudden in the middle of the game, you just pick up the ball and start running with it. Whistle blows, stop, you can't do that. And you're like, well, pff, whatever, right? Who's gonna stop me? <laughs> and they go again and then you do it again. All right, you can only do that a few times before they're like, dude, you gotta go, you gotta go. Those are not the rules to this sport or this game. Okay, genre is the rules for literature. It's how we understand a particular, particular kind of literature and then like how, we, like how we interpret the meaning based on the rules around it. Does that make sense? And not all genres are the same. And the Bible has a bunch of different kinds of genres. So it would be important for us to say, I want to at least have a, a, like an intro level understanding of genres if I'm going to interpret scripture and decide if it's literal or not. So the genres of the Bible, here we go. We'll go kind of, you know, chronologically, at least kind of how the Bible's written. Um, so the first one is the law. The law. These are the first five books. Often Jesus called them the books of Moses or the books of the law. And, and it's the first five books of the Old Testament. And they are this. They are God's commands to Israel for how to live, worship, and govern. Often referred to as the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is the basis of the Old Testament law, which then was how they were supposed to live. And again, remember, for us, we say that's authoritative, but not for us. We are new covenant, not old covenant. It's, it's why you sitting where you are, you can wear like clothing with mixed meat, like with wool and, and, like, and cotton. You're allowed to. But for them, if you remember this, a few weeks ago, we said we looked at, they aren't allowed to wear anything mixed and for a very particular reason, but that doesn't apply to us. If you read this and say, man, this is for us, like we would have to look at our clothing and go, anything that's not 100%, you got any 60-40 in there, right? Your look at your tag, right? And if it's mixed, throw it away. Hold on, that doesn't apply to us, but it is within the law. So we see that there is this genre of law, which is very specific, and it's for Israel, and it doesn't necessarily, doesn't apply to us. And then we see the genre of narrative, or often referred to historical narrative. This is a narration of events used to convey a message, and they are purposeful stories that contain character and plot and plot resolution. This is very specific now of here's, oh, here's what happened. Here's the story about Noah or, or Abraham or like, like insert the, the story, like the, all the thing, like all the Bible stories like you grew up on or like you remember or, where, or like Noah's Ark, all of those are narrative of here's what happened. But, but listen, they're also told, told with a very specific purpose. And narratives, here's the key in genre. Narratives have one main point. That's it. It's not, well, here's all these different things. And we can learn from them and, and pull some truths, but, but when, the write, like when they're writing this down, listen, this has one main point. 
there are characters here you need to know, and there's plot, and, and, then, and then there's plot resolution, maybe a challenge or, or a conflict or something happens, and then there's a resolution at the end. And, and it doesn't always tell you, here's the point of the story, but there is always a point of the story. The Bible is a, a, a mostly narrative. Two-thirds of the Bible is Old Testament, and 40% of the Old Testament is narrative. It's here's what happened. And, and, and you're reading this going, okay, I need to know this genre. And the genre is this. The Bible could, like, there's all kinds of things that happen. Not everything made it in. So, so why is this here? Why did the author write this narrative? And what's the point of this passage? We see that the, uh, the book of Acts is also narrative. Here's what happened. Let's just describe the events. It's descriptive, but it's narrative of here's how the early church started. And you're reading this going, all right. It, it, it's really hard to pull out all of these theological points out of Acts because it's narrative. It's not meant to be a theology document. It's narrative. It's the story. It's here's what happened. And it's descriptive. The next one is prophecy. And this one is, can be confusing. So um, prophecy uh, is uh, our prophet's of God who spoke specific messages to his people. Now, prophecy can be a few things. It can be foretelling, which is mostly what we think of when we think of prophecy, like predicting the future about something, or forthtelling, which is not predicting the future, but rather just saying, communicating a message on behalf of God. So prophets did both of these, and most of their time they were forthtellers, not for tellers. So we think of prophets as like predicting a future event or describing what's going to happen. And that is, and we see that in the prophets. But a lot of what they do is just simply, let me just, I'm, my job, my role as the prophet is to be the mouth, mouthpiece of God and to communicate what he's telling me. And that's it. And not even give commentary on it, not even understand fully what I'm supposed to be, like what this all means. But my job is to hear it from God and to share it with you, his people. And sometimes it predicted the future. Often it did not. And it was just simply, here's what God wants to say to you. And so we see the prophets. Uh, there are a lot of prophets in the, uh, in the Old Testament. There's four major prophets and, um, and, um, who, that compile about five of the books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are the major prophets. And then Lamentations is another book written by Jeremiah. Um, quick, quick little uh, uh, Bible trivia for you, if you're ever on Jeopardy, uh, what's the longest book of the Bible? You want to say Psalms, and I totally understand. It has the most chapters, but it's not the longest book. By words, this, the, the, literally the longest, literally, the longest book of the Bible is Jeremiah. Here's what that tells me. The dude could write. And he also wrote Lamentations, because he wasn't, he's like, I'm not done. <laughs> I mean, this guy, like, if you're, if you're reading Jeremiah, if, like, if you're going through, you know, the Bible in a year, you're in Jeremiah a long time, going like, dude, you could have said this in far fewer words, but he just, maybe he was paid per word or whatever, like, just, he just went. So there's major prophets, and they're major in that their works are longer, not that, not, it's not with regard to importance, and then there are minor prophets. The 12 minor prophets are often referred to as the 12, and their books are shorter, and so you can read those in one sitting and be like, all right, I got it. That makes sense. So, so there are, throughout Israel's history, there are there's a number of prophets. And their genre, when you're reading it, is important to know. 
Is this foretelling? Is this foretelling? Is, is this describing a, like a, a, a specific future event or a, a messianic prophecy? And, and again, you're reading this, God, and you're, and you're understanding the rules of prophecy. And then there's poetry. Now, this one will be fun because this one is, is so often confusing. Um, emotional language Poetry is emotional language meant to reach the head through the heart using illustration and metaphor. Now, again, if we're going to say, I, I take the Bible literally. All right, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what it means to believe the Bible and especially the poetry literally. So um, uh, poetry in the Bible is Psalms. It's filled with poetry and also some wisdom, but it's po- it's. It's poetic language describing either how they felt towards God or felt towards other people. And certainly Song of Songs or Song of Solomon is poetry. It's poetic language about uh, Solomon and his bride, his wonderful bride. Now, let's read a description of Solomon's bride. And let's just see what would happen if we said, I take this literally. Literally what he says is what she looked like. Now, I'm going to describe her, and then I'm going to show this lady, right? Here we go. Um, By the way, uh, gentlemen, Valentine's Day is coming up quick. You can learn a few things here as we go through this. Here's some descriptions. How beautiful are you, my darling? How beautiful you are. Great start. Guys, again, take notes. Write that down. Wonderful start. Here we go. Your nose, honey, is like the tower of Lebanon, which faces towards Damascus. What? A tower? It's that big? Hold on, I'm not done. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. What? Your, your hair, honey, your hair. Okay, be careful. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Excuse me? Excuse me, come, what? Oh, okay, let me, your teeth are like a, a flock of newly shorn ewes or, or sheep like they're just beautiful your lips are like scarlet thread your temples are like a slice of pomegranate what's wrong with my makeup what do you no 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 honey it's, it's beautiful it's beautiful pomegranates are very red your neck is like a tower of David built with rows of, of stones on which are hung a thousand shields you th- you think my neck is that long? No, I'm, I'm, honey, this is beautiful language. This is beautiful. He goes on. Uh, some of this is a little PG, but, but you know, it, the description continues. We'll, we'll move past some of that. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Okay, that's nice. The, the fragrance of your garments are like a fragrance of Lebanon. Your navel is, my navel, is like a round goblet and your belly. okay careful now. You're, no, 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 listen, honey, listen. Your belly is, it's like a, it's like a heap of wheat. <laughs> like a bag of wheat? That's what you think about me? No, no, honey, this is, this is biblical. Like, this is real, like, this is a great description of a beautiful lady. Now, if we're going to read this literally, here's a picture of this lady. Here she is. <laughs> what? What a beauty, right? You look at that. I mean, if there's any single guys in here, you're going like, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I want in a lady. 
Now, clearly, clearly, this is not literal language. So when we say, I read the Bible literally, well, well, sure you do, but not this, right? It's not meant to be literal. It's poetry. It's describing like in a word picture. So we look at poetry and we say, all right, this is not, it's clearly not supposed to be taken literally. Okay, next genre is wisdom. Wisdom teaches the meaning of life and how to make godly choices. And, and this is, a, we're gonna spend some time here because this is important. They are general truths to be put into practice, not promises. This is important. So wisdom literature would be uh, Proverbs. Uh, Job has some wisdom in it, certainly Ecclesiastes. And so when we read these, these aren't things where you say, God, you said, and it didn't happen, and so you're a liar. Well, no. A proverb is not a promise. It's not meant to say this is true every single time and it's always right. But rather, these are, are general truths. These are, these are truisms that throughout time are, are more true than not, if that makes sense. So let's look at some of these and see like, okay, Proverbs 13, 18, it says this, whoever disregards discipline comes to poverty and shame, but whoever heeds correction is honored. We look at that and say, man, that's good wisdom. But is that always true? We read that literally and say, all right, anytime someone disregards discipline, then that means they become poor and shamed. Well, no, there's plenty of people. There's plenty of like terrible kids who grow up to be terrible people and also wealthy. Man, what happened? Clearly the Bible lied. Well, no, it's not saying this is true every time, but rather like you pit these against each other and one is always better than the other. And there are plenty of people who, who heed correction and weren't honored for it. They did the right thing, but didn't experience the benefit from it. But wisdom tells us to focus on one over the other. Proverbs 20, uh, 21.5 says this, good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. But not every time. There are plenty of times where hard work doesn't lead to prosperity and where there are lazy people who are prosperous, who do like just luck into it or, or whatever it may, or inherit, whatever. So you read this and you say, no, this is generally true, but it's not a promise. Here's another one, Proverbs 10. This, this is, um, I'm gonna, this is for my kids. He who gathers crops in the summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Now, we don't have a harvest, but you know what I do have in the summer? I have a lawn that needs to be mowed. So for me, I'm looking at this going, he who mows his father's lawn is a prudent son. He who sleeps during mowing season is terrible. Now, we could also say this. He who brings sickness to the home of his father. <laughs> These are generally true, but not every single time, right? Here's another one. This, one. this one hurts a little bit. It's probably true, but I don't really like it. Proverbs 15, 17. Better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. But it's not always true. Sometimes you just want the steak, right? Ah, better vegetables with love than steak and hatred. Oh, I'll have the steak, but I'll go by myself. <laughs> Here's another one. Proverbs 10, 24, what the wicked dread will overtake them, what the righteous desire will be granted. That's a truism, but it's not always true. 
It's not always true that the wicked will be overtaken. And it's not always true that the righteous will get what they, what, like they desire. It may be not this lifetime, the next one where the righteous will get what they really are really seriously wanting. And, and it doesn't happen now. And it's not as though you read that and say, God, you lied. No, it's a proverb. It's not a promise. It's not meant to be taken literally happening every single time. Now let's look at the Gospels. The Gospels are their own specific genre. And although they are narrative, they're full of um, all kinds of, they, they certainly have wisdom and poetry and Jesus speaks in parables, which is another subgenre. And so the Gospels are four different portrayals of the life and ministry of Jesus. And every Gospel has a different focus. They come at it from a different angle. They're describing a lot of times the same events, but, but with a different purpose behind it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospels. And in them is all kinds of actual like narrative. Here's what happened, but also here's some symbolism. Here's some illustration. Here's a metaphor. Jesus used metaphors all the time. And if we were to say, I, read, I take the Bible literally. Well, all right, let's look at what Jesus says and see if this is taken literally. Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Well, okay. We know he's not actual bread. Even though he says, he says, if you want to be my disciple, here's what you got to do. Ready? You got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now he's talking about communion, but they don't know that. They're like, they take them literally. Wait, what? We got to, huh? And it says that this was so hard that, that, that those who were following left him. And this is one of the reasons why early Christians were described as cannibals because they believed in eating flesh and drinking blood. Well, no, no, you, you did it wrong. You took it literally. And he's not talking about literal eating flesh and blood or actual bread. John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. He's not literal light. He's describing the spiritual influence he has. He, I'm going to come and illuminate all the darkness in this world. Okay, we get that, but it's not literal. Or how about this? I am the door of the sheep. He's not a six foot wooden door. What he's saying is, listen, you, for the sheep, you got to go through me. I'm the, I am the key to all of this. So there are plenty of things in the scriptures and in the gospels where we say, no, you don't, you, it would be silly to read those literally. And then we see the next genre, there are letters or often referred to as epistles. These are formal letters written from an apostle or a church leader to a person or a group of people with a specific purpose. So they're writing for a specific reason. And there are, we, we categorize them into two kind of categories. They're only in the New Testament and there are what are called Pauline epistles. These are letters written by Paul. And then the rest are referred to as the general epistles. And this would be, you know, James and Peter and John and, and anything not written by Paul because Paul wrote a bunch of them, most of them. And these are, we love these because these are very specific about how to live a Christian life what it means to follow Jesus. And they don't, they don't have just one main point. They can have many main points. As they're writing, they're not just, it's not like a narrative where we're saying, here's the point of the story. When Paul's writing, he's got, I got a bunch of points and I'm going from point to point to point. And when you read it and I'm trying to understand it, you gotta, all right, here's his main points. Here's, his main, here's what he's trying to communicate. So we read letters and epistles differently than we do narrative, certainly differently than we do poetry or wisdom. And then the last one, and this one is the most um, confusing or at least hard to do, like up for debate, the one that probably requires the most amount of work, and that is the genre of apocalypse. 
apocalyptic literature. And this, um, this refers to a specific form of prophecy, largely involving symbols and imagery and predicting disaster and destruction. This is the second half of the book of Daniel and Revelation. First half of Daniel's narrative, right? Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right, great. But then it switches over to this future, like, like apocalyptic literature. And you're going, wow, that just changed quick. And Revelation is a little narrative, but it's in some letters, like letters, like the specific messages of churches. And then it goes into full apocalypse. Now, if, listen, I know we love Revelation and, you know, it's like the thing that we all want to open up and try to understand and get into. But if you don't have an understanding of the genre of apocalypse, you have no chance of properly understanding Revelation because he writes this in apocalyptic literature. It's meant to be allegory and metaphor, not ever. Again, you can't take it literally. Here's an example. Let's just, let's look at the description of Jesus in Revelation that, that John writes um, in Revelation chapter 19. Here's what he says. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. Okay, so far so good. With justice, he judges and wages war. All right, Jesus, he's coming back and he's ready to fight. His eyes are like blazing fire. Oh, his, his eyes are fire. And on his head are many crowns. Okay, so he's like trying to balance as he walks. His name, listen, this, look at this. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Okay, he has a specific name. No one knows, only him. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. I thought we were just told that no one knows this name. Well, yeah, he has another name that we do know, word of God, okay? The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Great. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword. What? With which to strike down the nations. Okay. So he has a sword coming out and it's large enough to destroy entire armies, right? All right. Again, this is literal Jesus. That's a big sword coming out of his mouth, right? Did you know, did you know Jesus was a sword swallower? <laughs> and here he is, a sword coming out of his mouth. He will ruin them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the, of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Okay, what? Again, it, it helps us to know what that, in its context, what is the, what is the importance of a wine press? It has a very specific feature and a reason why it comes up. And then verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Did you know this? Jesus has a tattoo <laughs> on his thigh, written. It says it right there. Now look at, you read this, and you're looking at this saying like, wow, that's a description of Jesus. I take the Bible literally. So when I meet Jesus, this is the person I expect to meet, right? So you and I, if you, assuming you're a follower of Jesus, and we die one day and we go and stand before him. He welcomes us in and he says, hey, nice to meet you. Hey, look out. I don't want to cut you in half. No, you're not going to meet Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth because this is not literally him. It's describing his role at this particular time in the history of events. Does that make sense? So we read this and we say, all right, this isn't literally what Jesus looks like, but it is describing who he is and his function and his role specifically during the end. So now we understand these genres and we, we can see that not, not everything should be taken literally. It would be silly to read everything literally in the Bible. 
So we said this, the real issue is not whether we take the Bible literally, but whether we take it seriously. So what does it mean to take the Bible seriously? Here it is, ready? Taking the Bible seriously means reading it, here it is, ready? Literarily, not always literally. So here's what this means. You're reading the scriptures and you're saying, I'm reading this as literature in a specific genre and it, it, it is really important for me to know what genre this is because I'm reading literature and for me to understand it, it isn't always literal, though a lot of it is. There are plenty of times where you're saying, no, this isn't meant to be literal. This is, meant, this is literature and I should read it as such. Taking the Bible seriously means reading it literarily, not always literally. Now, that was 45 minutes or so. We're done. That feel fast? No? Okay, let's do it again. Start at the top. <laughs> Here's the goal. Now, what's, what's kind of odd about this series is there isn't like a, like a, all right, this week, Here's what you're going to focus on. Here's what you should do. But rather, here's how you should understand the scriptures. So for us, we're going to worship here in a second. For us, what it means is this. Jesus, I want to commit to bettering my understanding of your word. To doing the work of, of understanding what it says. And then looking at how I should apply it. Would you do this? Would you stand with me as we get ready to to worship together and I'm going to pray for us. So Lord, we, we thank you for your word. I mean, it's a, your word is incredible. Um, it is, it has a depth beyond belief, yet it is not so deep that we can't understand it. So help us, Lord, not to feel like it's our job to defend the Bible, to make sure everyone else has a proper understanding of it. Instead, help us to take it seriously, to take it to heart. Help us, Lord, to love your Bible. Help us to love your word. And so that becomes contagious. Help us to be committed to understanding your word at a deeper level, to making sure that we know what it says, what it means, but also then how we should respond in kind. We love you, Lord. We worship you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.